If your brand could use more effective and efficient ways to drive growth, then you have come to the right place. This is where smart marketers learn to leverage their own community to ignite growth in sales awareness and beyond. Welcome to The Rise, the community commerce marketing show. I'm your host, Jason Falls. We are exploring the new and exciting category of marketing strategy, automation, and software called Community Commerce Marketing. Today, we have quite a treat for you. Bruce Cleveland is here. He is the author of Traversing the Traction Gap, which is a best-selling book that brings to bear his experience as a marketer and startup investor. It helps startups take their ideas through to the growth stages. He's been involved in some of the biggest success stories in Silicon Valley, including Siebel Systems, Marketo, and more. We're going to tap into that wisdom today on the rise. Before we bring Bruce on, though, let's take a moment, if you haven't already, to follow and subscribe to The Rise. This is a new streaming video show and podcast from Scipio.ai, the leading community commerce marketing platform. Follow Scipio.ai on LinkedIn or YouTube for the live show. Uh, or, of course, we do pull off the audio as a podcast after, so subscribe wherever you get your podcasts for that. All right, our goal uh, with this uh, live show is to make efficient use of your time, so we like to dive right in. Bruce Cleveland is with us today. He's a longtime investor, currently the chief marketing officer at C3AI, the global market leader in enterprise AI. Bruce, good morning to you, sir. How are things in the Valley these days? Hey, good morning, Jason. Great to be with you. One one uh, note: I recently retired as the uh, CMO of C3.AI after we were able to successfully take the company public for another year or so. And I've worked many years with Tom Siebel, the CEO of that company at Oracle, and then at Siebel Systems, and then with them there. And so um, after those three rounds, I decided that that was probably going to be it for me in terms of Silicon Valley tech operating roles and. Uh, and so um, I, I left recently, but uh, still directly connected. Well, congratulations on uh, going public and congratulations on the retirement. I know those are big steps and steps you've taken before, at least the going public part and building successful companies. So um, it seems like the only thing that people want to talk about in 2023 so far is artificial intelligence. Um, you know, you have been sitting on top of that mountain at C3AI, I believe. For the average marketer out there, though, the middle America brand manager who isn't necessarily plugged into the bleeding edge conversations in Silicon Valley about artificial intelligence, what would be your um, your points or your argument for why they need to really not just pay attention to AI, but get up to speed quickly? How does this help the average business or brand at a high level? Well, I think one first off, I think that AI is actually somewhat of a misnomer at this point. Um, we don't have actually sentient beings that are, that are um, machine or non-carbon based. So the, um, the, the fact is it's, it's machine learning that's really driving the process. I mean, someday we might have artificial intelligence, probably will have artificial intelligence. I think it's a ways off, but I know everybody kind of mixes the two different terms together. But to be very specific, what we're doing is we are taking a set of algorithms, applying a bunch of content that, uh, that those algorithms then uh, review, absorb, train on, and those drive the, um, the behavior of the application that uses that content in order to produce new content or other content that can be predictive in nature. Um, it can also be retrospective in nature and it can combine the two together. And I think the reason that 
we all need to be aware of what's going on in this area is that it's going to, um, I think, if we think of software eating the world, I think AI is going to be the digestive system of that. Um, the um, It is going to be pervasive in everything that we do. I think um, we've built a history of, of applications that have been transactional in nature. Uh, we then use retrospective technology to evaluate what happened. Um, the next natural phase has been, well, okay, if that happened, can we actually predict the future, uh, what will happen? A lot of this has evolved over time. It's not actually really brand new. Um, it's just eventually now, it's now emerging into the sort of generalized areas. Think about weather predictions um, that, that's been around for quite some time. We think about predictive maintenance, trying to determine what when a machine part might fail. Um, but because of the new technologies that have emerged through open source and, and, and other, um, other distribution methodologies, we're now seeing this enter into a lot of applications. Um, you know, for example, if you're a marketer and you want to reach uh, a shopper at uh, Kroger's, perhaps um, we can expect to see beacons on every single shelf throughout the store with your phone being the the recipient of those beacons and uh, offers being made as you shop up and down the aisle um, versus the old way where you might go and you're part of a frequent buyer program and uh, you buy something, you give them your phone number or some sort of member number that then gets processed through a, the point of sale transactional information. And then eventually you get an email saying, hey, how about a coupon next time that you come in? for you know, your favorite product. That's not gonna cut it in, in this new world. The new world will be, hey, we know that you frequently buy Wonder Bread, um, but how about trying some really great Dave's bread? You know, something that, and so we wanna do that right when you're in the process of it. And so uh, here's a coupon at, at the counter, uh, digital coupon at the counter. The, this new real-time, um, the new real-time world where everything is always on, is going to drive a lot of this new behavior. It requires an overhaul of nearly every system out there. And I think that's that's what's gonna happen here. And it's, it's not just going to, it is happening here. And that's why as marketers, we need to be very cognizant of what the technology is, what it can do, what it can't do, and perhaps maybe what it shouldn't do hmm. um, in the form of ethical um, uh, issues. Well, and, and I'm glad you you ended on that point because I was going to kind of follow up and say, what do we need to be thinking about in terms of what the technology can't or shouldn't do? What what safeguards or at least questions should we be asking? Because when I see, you know, I, I actually lamented this week um, on, on the social medias uh, about the fact that a very popular um, artificial intelligence uh, content application has been basically spamming my, the web form on my website. Um, and so I've gotten, you know, the same almost identical. Obviously, it's done through their, uh, you know, their sort of chat GPT like function on this particular uh, company's uh, platform. But I've gotten an almost identical sounding sales email from like 16 different um, sales representatives. And it's all, I'm sure, bots uh, that are doing it. So what questions do as marketers particularly do we need to at least be asking, if not safeguards, do we need to be putting up to say, OK, well, maybe we shouldn't go that far. Well, I think, um, you know, different companies will have a different point of view on, on what that should be. 
Uh, my view, it, it actually comes back to some root issues around marketing just in general and what we should and shouldn't be doing um, as marketers in order to engage um, a, a variety of our either current customers or our, our co people and companies that we would love to have them as, as customers. The, um, the one thing, one of the things that we can't continue to do is to send out unsolicited email and unsolicited phone calls. Um, every, I don't know when the last time is that you or I ever clicked on a banner ad. I mean, I, I don't do that. You know, it's kind of like on the freeway, I pass by these things and I don't, and I don't really pay much attention to them. Um, and as a result, the cacophony of, of information, the delusion of information that we're getting, the bombardment of information that we're getting, we have to really differentiate uh, what we're doing versus what others are doing and why we might fit into your universe of, of things that you might want to buy or use or buy and use. So I believe that, that AI can either assist in that process or it can simply um, uh, augment the negative side of, of these processes. Um, outbound email, you get, we have spam folders that, that and in fact, AI will will begin to take a look at the the your spam folder and basically start throwing it already is by the way. Um, it'll throw it'll throw information or or email into there that'll never reach the recipient. So we don't have we don't have great delivery. And as as you know, if you if you send it multiple bad emails out, there's technology that will will call will um, uh, bad list your your mm -hmm. uh, name. And so we need to be really careful here because AI could just accelerate that such that you're now um, blacklisted from almost everything and not able to actually reach out. I have some other alternative suggestions for what you might want to do rather than that. <laughs> you know, we can either accelerate ourselves into a brick wall or we might be able to predict where the brick wall is and go around it. Yep. It's kind of pleasantly ironic that the technology will hopefully not get out of hand because of the technology we've built to make sure we don't get out of hand. So that's nice. All right, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, traversing the traction gap, which is really a must read for anybody starting a business, particularly a, a software business. But give us uh, kind of the quick background on on why you wrote it, because you were involved with a lot of successful companies, you know, probably developed the the traction gap theory as a um, you know, almost intellectual property for what you were doing, but you wrote this book. It's been incredibly helpful to me and I know a lot of other people, but what was the, what was the reason that you set forth and, and gave this to us? So um, this was, I, I wrote this um, mostly because I became really, really annoyed with um, the behavior of, of the venture capital community in general, not everybody. I mean, there's really, there's a lot of great, great people in it, but um but in general, so I'm, I'm speaking in generalities here. Sure. We would have meetings with entrepreneurs. They would give us their presentation. Um, I would listen to this and I would know halfway through, there's no way that we're investing in this company. We would politely listen to the rest of it. And at the end, um, we would say, hey, that's great. You know, we'll keep in touch, et cetera. And I, and I would say, as a, I didn't start out in venture capital. I'd spent 25 years on the operating side before being involved in venture capital. I said, well, why aren't we just honest with the entrepreneur and let them know, hey, we're not going to invest in this. Um, here's two or three reasons why and send them on their way. And that way we don't waste their time. They got some feedback. And the response that I would get back from a variety of different folks 
is uh, well, we don't want to do that because if we make them angry with us, then we won't get a shot at investing them if they're actually successful down the road. <laughs> like, well, this is this is not a great way to run a railroad. So um, after about uh, around 13, 14 years in having enough venture experience where I had pretty good success, um, I began to realize, okay, I'm having good success evaluating what are essentially ideas. They really, um, they really weren't existing companies. They were concepts or a little bit of code, sometimes no revenue, no code, uh, maybe just three people maybe a dog. I don't even know. Maybe, maybe, you know, the iconic dog. But anyway, at the end of it, I go, well, how come I'm having reasonable success picking things that are becoming these multi, these, the outcomes are pretty decent Mm -hmm. things like Marketo and others. Um, When those companies really didn't exist. And even when I picked uh, as a, as an operator um, with Oracle, it's a small little startup, um, wasn't public, maybe a hundred people when I joined. Um, same thing with Siebel Systems. I mean, maybe a couple million in revenue. Um, but I was able to apply my own principles to whether I thought the outcome was going to be successful or not. And then after sitting through about 15, like I said, about 15 years of these um, of these venture capital experiences, I realized there's actually a process I go through in order to evaluate these companies. And then once I'm invest, I've invested in them, I, I also have similar, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I have a set of processes that I call and I said, you know, I think it might be helpful to the entrepreneurial community and maybe the investment community mm-hmm. to come up with some uh, uh, a taxonomy that allows people to figure out where are we from ideation into um, into success, however you define that. Um, where are we along that continuum? And if we're at point B, um, wherever that may be, what should we be doing? Um, at that point. And so that led me to come up with a set of um, some nomenclature that I borrowed um, initially from uh, from folks like Steve Blank and, and, uh, and others around, um, around this concept called minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. And um, I look at it a little different. I read the book. Um, I, I describe it slightly differently. But I realized that we could define some other what I would call value inflection points, points in time as a company where we have demonstrated success, diminished risk, and increased the value of our company to an outside investor um, or our, you know, for ourselves. And, and I said, well, let's start with MVP because people, I think people understand that. So, and I don't want to create a whole bunch of different terms. Um, so I came up with the concept of minimum viable category. Uh, minimum viable repeatability and minimum viable traction that um, that exist on this continuum and uh, that you need to go through. You need to actually complete the tasks to achieve that particular objective before you can really move on to the next one. A lot of companies do move on and find that they have to move back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, And it's not always, a, even though the line may be straight, it's not always done in a straight line. <laughs> Um, but this concept would make it easy for investors and entrepreneurs to have a discussion with each other about what we need to do. And then the girding all of that underneath that continuum are effectively four pillars that exist from ideation through this scale. And those four pillars are product, revenue, team, and systems. And those different pillars take a different um, – <clears throat> they come to the fore at different points along that continuum. Right. Initially, it's team and product. Um, but by the time you're scaling, it's about systems. 
Do you have the right systems in place? That becomes the prominent uh, pillar in the equation. So I wrote a prescriptive guide. I wanted it to be prescriptive. A lot of great business books out there, but they don't really tell you what to do. They tell you what somebody else did. Right. Uh, they tell you maybe somewhat, right? Maybe more, uh, more abstractly. You certainly see their outcomes. But they don't tell you precisely what do you need to do at this point in time? What should you be focused on? What are the benchmarks of other companies at your stage? What did they do? Where were they in revenue, team, systems, et cetera? So I wrote this. Um, I didn't think actually that I had enough to write about it. I thought, well, maybe I'll get about 50 pages. Turned out I was able to write about 500 pages pretty <laughs> easily. And I had to way back. Um, maybe yeah. it's the subject of the book. But the, ben- the net of it, and to answer your question directly, is I wanted to give back um, to the entrepreneurial community and the venture community. Um, perhaps this, this methodology and prescriptive way of talking about your company. And one of the things that emerged out of this, and I do write about this in the book, is that companies refer to themselves as seed companies or series A, series B. Right. And, and that's terribly uninteresting. And I'll tell you why. There's many different companies that that call themselves a series A or B, and they're all over the map in terms of their size. They could be, for example, there was a company recently, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, that um, called Articulate that got, was the largest, I think, series A in U.S. history that I know of anyway. It was a one and a half billion dollar series A. Wow. Well, they already had a million cus- or nearly a million customers. They just didn't raise capital until a long ways out. That was just happened to be their first round. So series A or B, these tell us nothing about the maturity of your company. I wanted something that says, oh, you're at MVR, minimum viable repeatability. There's a set of attributes associated with that value inflection point. You can read it in the book. It's in mm-hmm. infographics that I've included with it. And therefore, the team and the and the investors can understand, oh, okay, I get it. This And this is why we think we're at MVR. These are the things we've done. Um, to be able to do that, I know that if I build something, I demo it, I say this, I present that, and I and I go through a process, I can reasonably predict with certainty that 35% of those deals are going to close. And I begin to take that fancy MBA that I got out of Harvard, Stanford, <laughs> and I can start applying it to doing um, spreadsheet discounted cash flows, et cetera, and doing financial analysis. The companies that I invested in, there was no revenue. There was no real team. There in times no product. You need proxies for uh, those financial metrics. And so before that, uh, that magical point of MBR, you need those proxies to figure out, hey, how much more capital is this company going to take? What's, what's yeah. the reasonable certainty that it can reach this next point? And then to have a, a valuable discussion with the entrepreneurial team and the investors around what are they going to do, what's going to be capitalized, and how long is it going to take. So I felt that it, by doing this, at least it would be a give back. And um, it was useful for me because I, we were creating a new venture firm called Wildcat Venture Partners. Um, and we needed a way to differentiate us you know, from <laughs> all the other venture firms. And so this became, this methodology became a, a way for us to engage with entrepreneurs to have them think about their company, for us to think about their company as a financial product, for them to think about their company as a application software company or whatever, and um, it was very, it became very useful. In fact, we would spend more time on you know, a lot of teams just wanted to go through this process more of a consulting process than than an actual investment process. And um, and I realized at some point it might be useful 
yeah. um, to provide this as a as a um, another tool for um, for company startups to use, even though they might have Y Combinator or other things like that. This became a more maybe more accessible uh, mm -hmm. tool for them to be able to uh, to get their company their startup to success. And we all know, right? 90 percent of them fail. Yeah. Well, I'm, as someone who has read the book, I can tell you that it's uh, an, it's an absolutely smart blueprint for success. And I would encourage anyone who is starting any type of business to read it. Obviously, if you're in the, you know, startup software space as well, it's going to be much more probably applicable to some of the things, the milestones that you want to map out. But it's it's definitely a fantastic book. We'll make sure the links uh, to the book on Amazon are dropped in the comment section here uh, on the stream. So Bruce, one more question before I let you go. We want to make efficient use of everyone's time today in the middle of the day, but I've been around the startup space for a while in a, in a tangential, you know, sort of marketing role. This is, you know, my role here at Scipio is the first time I've been on the, I guess the brand side in the startup world, but one sense that I've gotten from going to events over the years and listening to startup entrepreneurs talk about their technology and their their social platforms that they've built and whatnot, I've always gotten the sense that the biggest problem with early stage companies, kind of ideation stage companies and their founders is that they have a good idea for a solution to a problem that doesn't seem to exist. Is am I out of, of sorts here? You've you've heard a lot more pitches. You've talked to a lot more entrepreneurs than I have over the years. But I, I I get these people at a conference will say, Hey, I'm a startup entrepreneur. I'll ask them about their company and they'll say, Well, here's what we do. And I'm like, Well, what problem does that solve? And they always seem to be like, Well, it just makes things cooler or whatever. Is that a is that common or am I just seeing the the outliers in that equation? No, I think that I think it's part of a, a, a set of of things that cause uh, the number one reason why companies startups are single product typically single product companies mm -hmm. the number one reason for failure according to a number of different um surveys that have been done by professional groups is no market need mm -hmm. and um and so this is why one of the points i make in the book is that you need to develop market iq and market iq is not just your intuition although you could be good at <laughs> at intuiting what the market needs, whether that's a consumer product or it's a, a software product or any a hardware product, whatever, you might be good at it. But the evidence suggests you aren't and that most people aren't, um, even within existing companies. So this book, by the way, this this concept applies to large companies as well that are bringing out new products. There's a general sense of, of ego, there's an ego that exists inside these companies many times that they think they know what the market wants. There's a few people who do, Mark Benioff, Tom Siebel, Larry Ellison. I mean, we know a few of them, Steve Jobs. The fact that we can rattle those off and not many others means that that generally that's not really true. We might have a sense of what a, a market might want, but the market might not want, know that. And so we have to do market IQ work, which is how do we go out and quantitatively and qualitatively assess whether or not our idea is any good before we ever lay down any code. And one would suggest using a lot of different tools. You can even just use simple PowerPoint to mock up what something might accomplish and get people to react to it. Mm -hmm. And if you're in like a B2B company, you might want to talk to individual contributors, managers, directors, and executives, and the CFO or the people who are going to have to pay for this, this technology. You might want to talk to them too to find out what they pay for it, how much they might pay for it, et cetera, and assemble at least a reasonably um, good set 
of statistics that, that you can evaluate. You go to any good research school, they'll, they'll teach you that to do great research, you need to be able to do great studies and you need to be able to evaluate for you know, something called a probability. <laughs> and so I find that most companies, if they do know how to do this, they don't. Um, and a lot of ego gets in the way of it. And that's one of the major reasons why, why these companies fail. And uh, so that's part of the book and part of the process of reaching something like a minimum viable product is to um, avoid the following, which is, I know we call MVP something we call, we say product market fit. Well, the truth of the matter is that for most of the stuff we're creating, there really, there really isn't a market yet. Um, yeah. So I look at it and say, well, what we really should say is we, we're searching for market product fit. Without mm -hmm. a market, there's no need for your product. And there's no need to go through the process of creating it. And I think in our, our zeal to, uh, because we believe in our ideas, uh, in, our, in that zeal, we, we bypass um, market research, which can actually be done quite quickly now uh, versus, you know, a decade ago, tough to do, right? Only the largest companies, you'd have to go pay a lot of money for market research. We can actually do this quite effectively. And on top of that, Typically, product managers don't have a degree in product management. There's very few schools that have this. Um, and typically, it's, a, it's in your graduate years, not your undergrad years. So um, the, uh, the fact is that we don't do this work. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of hand-waving, arm-waving around how great this product is going to be, trying to convince investors to invest, et cetera. Um, but we don't do any of the work. To really, gen to really confirm quantitatively that actually our idea is not just a good one, it's a great one, that there's a large enough market for us to go after uh, if that idea were to be successful. And that maybe this is the final point of the book, that in order to be successful, I have found either as in as building a bunch of products at Apple and, and at, at Oracle and Siebel, um, and then investing in companies that built them. The success of those products is rarely due to the product itself initially. I mean, we, most of the things I've invested in or tried to build, we've been able to build. It, take, it, it may have taken longer, more capital, et cetera. But that's not the reason that they're successful. Um, product engineering is table stakes. What's really required is market engineering. You need mm -hmm. to engineer the market. It's thought leadership investment, category creation investment, messaging, positioning, and finally, storytelling. Being a great storyteller. Think about what Steve Jobs used to do. You need to become a great market engineer if you're a startup executive or executive team. And if you don't do that work, you know, I doubt that Larry Ellison or Tom Siebel or uh, Benioff would call themselves market engineers. It's a term I came up with to describe those or to, to, to reference those five things. Um, but they are. And, and, um, and so they're, they're excellent at conscripting us into sort of their vision of the way the world should be to be a better world. So that's how um, that's what I've, I've run into over the 15 years. And in the book, I try to explain to people, you really need to do this work before you start writing any code or doing do the do the mockups, go out and test, do do what Procter and Gamble would do before they would launch a product, go out and test market. Mm -hmm. um, so the net of it is that um, it's it's a it's a, a common problem. And I think in the consumer industry, because it's pretty cheap to get to a product, I'd say that the real expense is commerciality. Yep. Um, the real cost uh, is, is associated with about a 96% failure rate of consumer products. And for B2B products around an 
And if you're an existing company coming out with a new line of product, the failure rate's around 60%. That's a, if we took all that capital, that wasted um, R&D dollars, and we were able just to improve by 10%, mm -hmm. think about how what would happen to the GDP of, the, of not just yeah. our country, but other countries as well that do the same thing. So that's, uh, yeah, I share your, your <laughs> <laughs> about what's the use of this thing. Um, and in many cases, the use is entirely uh, dependent upon us engineering um, the use case. Very good. Excellent. Well, Bruce, I, I think it, I don't think it's a secret to, to anyone in the world to, that we think the world of you and your advice here at Scipio.ai. Thank you so much for sharing some of that wisdom with us today. If folks want to find the book or you on the interwebs, where should they go? So uh, www.tractiongap.com. And uh, the book is available through uh, lots of different channels and sources. Awesome. We'll make sure that link uh, as well as a couple other links like Bruce on LinkedIn and whatnot are in the show notes. Uh, Bruce, again, thank you for your wisdom, sir. It's an honor to have you here. You bet. Thank you very much, Jason. All right. Bruce Cleveland, ladies and gentlemen, how about that? Nice treat for us here uh, on the rise. We'll drop the links in the comments here on the stream for those of you watching on LinkedIn or YouTube. Uh, if you are uh, listening to the audio podcast on demand, find the podcast by looking for Scipio.ai on LinkedIn or YouTube. Quick note for everyone listening, we will be hosting a free webinar coming up this Friday called Unlocking the Power of Community Influence Marketing uh, to Grow Your Brand. It's a look at our concept of influence marketing through the brand of your, uh, through the eyes of your own brand community. The live webinar on Friday is at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific time in the U.S., just like this podcast, we've created it so it'll take about 20, 30 minutes tops, including Q&A time. So register for free at bit.ly slash community influence. That's bit.ly slash community influence. And uh, do join us for that. We'll show you a little bit of our SIM platform, our community influence marketing platform there too. You'll get some new ideas on how to approach influence marketing a bit more efficiently and effectively than you've probably thought of before. So that's coming up on Friday, bit.ly slash community influence. Make sure you register for that fun webinar. Thanks for joining us for the rise, ladies and gentlemen. It's the community commerce marketing show where we document the rise of the exciting new category of marketing strategy, automation, and software that is community commerce marketing. Uh, we know you want to bring community commerce marketing strategies to your business. Be sure to uh, follow us on at Scipio.ai. Hit the demo button up in the upper right. Rise is production of Scipio.ai. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn or YouTube so you never miss the broadcast. You can also, of course, subscribe to the show's audio on demand. Just search for Rise, the community commerce marketing show, wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for being a part of our community. We'll see you soon on another episode of The Rise community commerce marketing show. You may know you're listening to this show along the marketing podcast network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called own it. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. 
We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.